0: Hey, everybody, Dougal's here, and we got a different kind of show for you today. First up, I'm going to give you a preview of some premium content that we have, and you can access that by getting our annual subscription on skippydougals.supercast.com. Again, that's SkippyDougles.Supercast.com. You can go on there, sign up for the annual subscription, and you'll get this. But I'm going to start off with a few minutes of a preview of that episode where Skippy and Dougal's review our portfolios and then gonna follow up with some of your favorite clips that you told us that you really enjoyed from 2021. So it's gonna be that preview and then a compi- compilation episode from 2021. Really hope you enjoy it. Dougal's indicator. Yep. Yes. We're, we're going to the Dougal's indicator. And I will say two truths before I go into the Dougal's indicator. Two it's truths. Just Two truths and a lie. So it's two truths and then the Dougal's indicator. Hogwash. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Douglas, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. I don't know why they're always singing that it's the most wonderful time of the year song in December, when it should be were. Because, at least for me, rebalance time. I love these conversations. You, you just like tried to say january and i don't know what that was january <laughs> no see because january that's the time that everyone else lives like the time the people that are out there just doing whatever they do january is when you're buying 100 plus p.e stocks that's Listen, what that's what january is
1: if we're drafting the most wonderful times of the year january is not even going to be in my top like six
0: what about january
1: it- that is a month that doesn't exist.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, I'm excited for the combo.
1: Oh, dude. Okay, so I, I uh, preferred it last week, but yeah, you're going to be terrified. And So let me give you a quick preview of some of the things that I'm going to do a deep dive on. An apparel manufacturing firm uh, that manufactures uniforms corporate identity apparel like i'm so excited another one a vehicle towing and recovery equipment company i mean come (laughs) on aren't you excited (laughs) no one else wants to buy this stuff except me and mean reversion is gonna happen so i can't wait that's sexy yeah
0: it really is that's sexy Um, i'm excited to learn more
1: so the fun part about this is uh ever since we've been i mean ever since we've been chatting but uh especially on the pod like we have fairly opposite viewpoints of how to make money investing in stocks and uh they're at two ends of the spectrum so but the the fun part is we both believe that process is incredibly important and we both lean heavily towards the quantitative approach of trying to remove the human decision making element so dugos you want to give us a, a high level overview of your strategy and kind of your approach and then i'll do the same on my end
0: sure thing so I have a model that I call Farfin, because why the heck not? That's really the only reason why I wanted a name for it. And it's a, it's what I call long trend momentum, which is different than typical momentum investing. Typical momentum investing looks at usually the last year max um, at stock performance. Um, it Sometimes it's only looking at the last few days, looking at 200-day moving average. But I look at a long trend. So I look over years, decade, kind of long performance or longer. And what I look for in the stocks are that they are both consistent in their market beating returns. And also they have strong current recent momentum. Recent again for me is their one year, three year, five year, 10 year returns. That's what I call recent. So consistent yeah. over the long term and have recent momentum. They have to be at least five years public so they have some kind of data. But even if you are only five years public, it's pretty hard for me to buy you because it's just you yeah. don't have enough the track record. Exactly. Um, but that's that's like the the really high level. So because it has some momentum going for it, one of the reasons why Skippy says that uh, it's an opposite approach is because those types of stocks are pretty expensive. in a lot of times like they are, they are considered growth in many cases, um, might have high PEs relative to the stuff that Skippy buys. So we're an opposite end of the, the market there. But that's the, the high level.
1: Yeah, but uh, but similar approaches. I mean, momentum is a strategy that has been proven to work over and over. And to, when I look at the academic research, uh, again, let me just be smart about this. None of this is investment advice and past performance is not a predictor of, of future returns, but for our uh, fun, friendly conversation here, like I, that's why I respect the Dougal strategy. Cause I've seen a bunch of academic research that uh, momentum can work. And in a, in a lot of ways, yours is more rigorous because it's, it's, make sure it's not a f- short-term fluke right there's it's not just something that went crazy and crossed a 200-day moving average that you jumped
0: in um it's more durable than that yeah so it's in it in it uh, we talk about psychology a lot so the durability of it being long-term matches my psychology quite quite well because i have both through my professional life i think and just in how i am personally i believe in this concept of flywheels of businesses being able yep. to to create their own momentum and build off of a foundation to be able to persist in the long term. And so that's, that's the mentality that I have uh, going into this. Um, so so that's that. And want to say again, my this matches my psychology, which does not fit many, many people's, it ends up being a fairly concentrated portfolio of what I will even declare overly expensive stocks, um, which is potentially dangerous, but it works. Uh, it works well for me works well for my psychology. I've back tested it, which back testing has all the caveats, 16, 17 asterisks. I've yeah. back tested it for the last 60 years. Works quite well over that long that period of time. But past not predictor of future performance, but it is a predictor of what dougal's about to do. Exactly.
1: Uh no, the psychology piece is a good thing. So when we talk about my strategy, I mean I think the only way to classify it is deep value. The core of my quantitative screen is uh basically the foundation is built on chapter 14 of the intelligent investor benjamin graham right and if you don't know benjamin graham that's warren buffett's teacher at nyu absolute legendary people claim columbia. he created columbia. columbia
0: sorry yeah Why was it, I, it's it's the I was nyu thinking, uh, it's the nyu spanish harlem
1: <laughs> columbia of course so i won't go into all the details although i might when we talk individual stocks doodles but this is It's just something that's looking for really safe stocks. Benjamin Graham lived through the depression, watched his holdings fall apart, watched the country fall apart at that point. And when he came up with the strategy out of the depression, he said, I'm going to find things that are super durable. So these um, have really low debt. They have a great current ratio, which is just current assets to liabilities, which means they're not going to be in financial trouble anytime soon. They have dividend histories of 10 plus years they have growing dividends typically they have growing earnings like it's just these really stable solid companies and the fun part about um looking over history is you can go back to 2007 2008 and see how these companies weathered financial storms and in the large majority of the cases the stuff i'm buying uh went through that period just fine and so they're uh they're just undervalued. They're not exciting, like I mentioned, but that it's it fits my psychology really well, like you mentioned. Like I just like a deal. I've always liked a deal. So that's the breakdown. Now yeah. dougles, you mentioned the sixty year back testing. How about give me some uh a more near term performance when you've actually had money on the line with uh your strategy?
0: Well I mean let, let's not discount <laughs> the, the go go years. The what go-go when when, when I wasn't born. Let's not discount the go-go years when I wasn't born. Um, well, let so. me tell you,
1: I'm breaking down strategy right now. In 1963,
0: it was amazing. Right now, it doesn't work anymore. But uh. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> in, from October 15th to December 11th of 1964, this was whew, beautiful. Um, all right. So if you want to look at some, some more recent model performance, um, I'm going to break down. How about because this is the way that my, my brain works. I could go one year, three year, five year, ten year fairly arbitrary yeah. but that's like the, yeah. the way it works um so in in 2021 so last year is 17.81 percent is what um is what the model kicked out oh we're going two digits now come on Douglas. Like, okay sorry come on. all right 18 percent. i'm gonna round up <laughs> I'm gonna we, go. oh look at you <laughs> round a <clears> liar over that right, yeah so uh so last year 18 percent. um i when i look at Bench my benchmark that I look at is, as I've mentioned, it's VTI. So it's a Vanguard total stock market index, which is about 26% last year. So last year, it did not um, meet the benchmark in, in um, it's like, give or take 65, 70% of the time, it does beat the benchmark, the rest of it doesn't. And so one yeah. year doesn't necessarily do that for me. It doesn't do anything for me. But that was one year, um, three year, 165%, five year, 185%. And the 10 year is about 658% a cumulative return um those are not annual returns yeah <laughs> are, I was gonna say do returns.
1: you have annual because the cumulative is like I do hard for me I know to... but the cumulative
0: it's so big I got triple
1: digits. it sounds like oh,
0: oh look at this uh, yeah
1: I know but do you want average or median
0: I mean are
1: they yeah. that different you tell me
0: no they're not but it's just you know fancy um I guess I, I could throw out the Kager I just didn't calculate that for this but that's it's, it's close enough. Yeah. it's close enough um so I can I can do that right quick if you want me to but the the median over the last 10 years is 20 percent Okay, yeah
1: uh Kager, compound annual uh, growth rate or return is better so um it's so funny you mentioned that 60 to 70 percent when my model works and historically like in the back testing my model outperforms an index although i typically use the s p 500 um 60 to 70 percent of the time but in the last five years um I've underperformed more frequently than that. And I think that's simply because the markets have been going bonkers. And so a value strategy like mine isn't really meant to keep up with the markets when they are high flying. Um, there's kind of some a conservative nature built in. 22% returns, Kager, 22% oh, Kager. Look at you. So I'm gonna talk last 12 years because that's what I have handy. Uh, my Kager would be 18.4. Um, Solid. So. Look at you, Dougles. Uh Last year I did 24.8. I'm going to round up too. Sorry, 25, um, <laughs> which underperformed S&P 500. I have S&P 500 at, total return at uh, 28.71 um, to go two digits on you. And then I'll just, so people are kind of in the loop, I think I'll do some year-by-year returns over the past 12 years. So we go 36%, 11%, 13%, 22%. Nine percent eight percent um in t- twenty sixteen had a big year fifty seven percent and then seventeen I was at seventeen percent twenty eighteen is the only year um that I've had money in the strategy where I lost money I was down ten percent and then twenty nineteen thirty five percent last year eleven percent and this most recent twenty twenty one twenty five percent
0: nice man it's good I mean, stuff. Uh, yeah the uh, so I just have VTIs, not S&P on me, but uh, one thing actually that's important that you mentioned is all of these are total return. Like, so yeah, that's, yep. it's inclusive of dividends. I reinvest dividends back into the stocks that I have, but regardless, inclusive of dividends, the VTIs CAGR over that time period was 15%. So that's nice. You take even like in either case, right? 3% a year over that long period of time is oh yeah fire, fuego.
1: Yep. And if you can do it in a way where you never feel like you're going to lose your shirt. I mean, that's the main thing for me is I'm trying to limit drawdowns and everything else. My strategy has been interesting recently in terms of I'm kind of hovering near the benchmark. Um, and then I have a I have a huge year, right? I have a year of 30 plus percent or 50 plus percent, and that helps you run away from it. And then it seems like the rest of the time I'm kind of hanging uh, near I'm either, you know, 10% above or 10% below uh, the benchmark.
0: And that is, that is a big, it's a big deal when you talk about the drawdowns piece, drawdown being what's the, when you take the last like high point of the portfolio to whatever the, the trough is for like a given year, that's an interviewer yeah. drawdown. And I have like really significant um, drawdowns. And so my, my thing, my strategy does not limit <laughs> um, draw, drawdown so much, um, but it uh, it does have pretty high flying points, and I'd say overall, like in annual, it's intra year drawdowns that are big. Annual drawdowns aren't aren't that large um, necessarily, but yeah. it's the but there's so there's some swings in these stocks because a lot of the times these are stocks that uh, when you get to market conditions like we have today that are priced for near perfection, and so it's like a the wind blows in the middle of Kansas, and people are like, whoa, hold on, maybe hundred PE isn't a good idea. know type of stuff and so like uh so you get entry year swings that are pretty well yeah i think that's inherent with your approach
1: and the the flywheel like when the flywheel's going in your direction things are probably climbing much more quickly than my picks could ever dream of gaining value but uh
0: it can it can spin the other direction as well yeah and and especially uh, where my psychology starts to get a little more tested are in market conditions like this because this is can I bring up yeah. and I'm going I'm to look this up so I get the quote exactly right. But there was a quote from Skippy once that called what I'm about to talk about hogwash. Yep. I got that quote. Exactly right. Hogwash. <laughs> um, I, and,
1: we're going there. Dougal's indicator.
0: Yep, yes, we're, we're going to the Dougal's indicator. And I will say two truths before I go into the Dougal's indicator. Two it's truths, two
1: truths and a lie. So it's two truths and then the Dougal's indicator. hogwash. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, that's gold star if we were in second grade right now that's gold star um, so the two truths are first truth is this uh what i'm about to talk about with the doogles indicator has shown strong correlation with market tops over the last 50 years that's one yeah the second is that you cannot predict market tops those are two truths <laughs> okay i love it so so, so with that with that um, what the the high level of Dougal's indicator for those that did not listen to episode one or episode two uh, of last year is that I look at overall market performance and then market performance relative to all of the equities basically that are traded out there. So that's a very high level look. And I, I look at how those perform next to each other. There's some derivatives and whatnot that go into that to make it fancy. And when I say I don't mean financial derivatives, I mean, yeah. like, uh, look at the uh, like the change, the rate of change, right, um, of how that shifts. Uh, And then I I just looked at how that's performed and there seem to be rates of change that occurred at times where there were market tops. So specifically when this has gone off the last 50 years was 1973, which was, there was a 1973, 1974, significant drop, 1987, which had that crash, the year 2000 and 2008. Those are the last few times that it went off, right? Um, The reason I say that market conditions like this are when it tests my psychology is because right now where the indicator sits is the same place that it sat in like between 1998 and 1999 it's like halfway between where those two years were it's 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 the way that yeah it's it's kind of
1: guessing that 2023 might
0: or or it could be be next year it depends it just it depends because it could jump it's also where it was in 2007 it's where it was in 1986 like so it's like it's at that point where who knows right um, the indicator is saying it's it's, 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 it's getting expensive. There. Yeah. 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 Okay. Th- like th- th- things are expensive. Um, and that's a time where my stocks, um, especially, we'll get into more detail here. But um, when I say highly concentrated, my top two holdings are roughly 65, 70% of my portfolio. You're right? scaring me over that, um, man. Whew, I know, but it, it gets me tingling, is what it gets <laughs> me. So um, living on the edge. Who said that? Somebody said it. Aerosmith or somebody. Uh, so <laughs> Yeah. And so anyway, so the Douglas indicator saying like, we are in a period that that is similar ish to other periods that we've seen like this before. And you shouldn't ever just look at one thing. But we've talked about all the other indicators that are out there. You can look at Buffett's indicator, you can look at all of this stuff. It says like, we're in some kind of a broad period. Who knows what's going to occur. But because it did not say that this is a bubble pop year, I bought stuff. And so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, in, I'm involved. I'm still bullish, bullishly pessimistic.
1: That's so good. I was... Uh, on the edge of my seat for that Dougals indicator um
0: i can't wait you're telling a, a good story there. to be honest it's a little i was like i was so hopeful that that thing was you going. wanted it to hit yeah i really did because i'm scared <laughs> like it's a, I'm like oh this market is so it's out of it's I'm, out of control
1: i'm scared too man and when we talk about what i'm buying uh one of the things that, the only thing i'm really debating right now is how much uh safety to build into it and i'll probably do that yeah. with long-term bonds um But let me reset, this is a great point to do this. So we are rolling out uh, two premium subscription options uh, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, we heard some people wanted to uh, support the show and we also heard that people wanted to hear about our portfolios, obviously not investment advice, but we wanted to provide those options. We also didn't wanna sell ads to Fidelity or Wealthfront or whoever else and come across as biased folks. So uh, we're doing this for fun. Those. Premium subscription options are available. We had some subscriptions come in this week, which is awesome. Thank you, guys. Uh, they're available at skippydougals.supercast.com. So there's like a monthly subscription op- option, 7 bucks a month. That allows you to get the podcast earlier than everyone else and uh, kind of become a supporting member of the family here. And then there's a premium subscription. It's called Premium Plus. It's I roll with Skippy and Dougal's that's a yearly subscription plan the way it's structured right now and that will allow you to get the breakdown of our portfolios and everything else which is what we're going to jump into next doodles did i miss anything on that front nailed it boom all right you want to start with let's see i got more
0: stocks i should probably start with my picks over yeah. here right yeah you, you start off you start off okay all right that's the preview reminder go skippy And you can sign up for our annual subscription to be able to hear that full episode, get the rest of what we talked about there. Now on to what you told us were your faves for 2021. Enjoy it. Before you go on, though, would you explain what performance-based fees are? If I manage your money and you lose
1: money or I make you 2%, I don't charge any fee whatsoever. But
0: both of those sound Um, like plausible scenarios if you're managing my money. Continue. Oh, please. Buffett either, but I could be no. wrong. Let's just say it was Einstein. Because like, why it's, not?
1: It's like too witty for Buffett. Buffett would have had like two more sentences in there. Yeah,
0: exactly. He doesn't he doesn't go, he doesn't go that pithy. Um, but uh but when I heard this recently, and there's gonna be some tension in the room right quick, when I heard this recently was when Chamath said it. <laughs> Wait, are we gonna play this clip? People, if you could see my textual messages this week, it was every 15, sometimes every 17 minutes. I'm getting something from skippy to do That's basically saying like, I cannot believe this. What is this? What is he saying? Right. About value investing. Cause Chamath this week said many, many things. Right. But one of them yeah. is what he said. It's not time. It's not time in the market. It's time in the market. And he, <laughs> he, on. he spit some hotness. Hold on. I'm going to play uh,
1: like 30 to 40 seconds of this. Okay. Here we go.
0: One of the most interesting things that's happened in markets in your professional career is this shift away from what I'll call value investing towards what I'll call growth investing. As a capital allocator, I'm just curious how this has looked from your seat. What to you looks absurd about the value investing style? Obviously, I would characterize you as a growth investor just based on how fast the companies that you've invested in tend to be growing. What concerns you or worries you about growth? Can there be too much of a good thing? What are the excesses that would cause you to be concerned? Just talk me through these styles because you've been an exemplar of the change. Let me answer this by asking you a question. Do you have two or three kids? Two. Okay, two. Are your kids valuable? Do they have value? Of course. How much value do they have? Infinite value. Fair? Sure. You wouldn't say that they're valuable because they cost $4, (laughs) right? I think that the biggest fallacy of value investing is that people are not willing to revisit that word from first principles.
1: Okay. This is just hot garbage on like a thousand fronts. So one, you hear Patrick Oshada did you hear that laugh? Go back and listen to that laugh. He, it, His family's worth like 40 million bucks because his dad understood, he wrote a book called "What's uh, What Works on Wall Street. Uh, pioneered a lot of the factor investing stuff. Uh, they fully understand and support value investing. This is a freaking joke. So, okay, first of all, he says, are your kids valuable? Yeah, of course. Of course, your freaking kids are valuable. Are, you, are we investing in kids? No, absolutely not. What we're investing for, it has a quantifiable, like there's a quantifiable goal here. So, Dougals, what makes a good investment? What At the end of the day, what should your investment do for
0: you? Make money.
1: Yeah. Right. So let's talk about cash flows. Okay. Let's not talk about revenues, profits. Let's not talk about any of this other crap. Let's talk about free cash flows. If you have free cash flow, what can you do with it? You can spend it. You can take it out. You can do whatever the hell you want. So if I'm an investor and I buy a company and it has free cash flows, that's freaking fabulous. The investment that I made this week, and this is not advice is TDS, telephone data systems, price to free cash flow at 1.49, okay? You know, Chatmas portfolio, he he invested in Slack and some other nonsense. You know what price to free cash flow on Slack is? 200, all right? Who's getting a better deal here? Who's getting more cash flows, me or him? Now, listen, if I can already see the look on your face, if, if this is a series A and I'm the first person that Slack ever pitches, yeah, do I get a better deal on that? Maybe. And is do I understand growth investing? That you're saying, hey, five years from now or two years from now, like Slack's growth is going to crush TDS's growth? Absolutely. But right now, I got like 150 times better value than him per the price I'm paying for free cash flows. And it doesn't matter. One second, Diggles. It doesn't matter if I'm paying four bucks for this. Double debt. Right? (laughs) Doesn't matter at all. Because that company is worth two billion bucks. I'll pay two billion bucks for it. I don't care how many shares are out there i don't care what's divided by i don't think he's this naive i think he's simplifying the conversation but that what he described is not value investing at all it's not about four
0: bucks a share at all wow Hot yeah high. i can no, keep so going the, the the difference in my mind is because i i would say i mostly uh i'm not, maybe maybe i go too far to say agree you will hop in your car and show up here like those demon twins on snl i don't know if you watched snl last week yeah. but if people have not seen that clip go watch the demon watch, twins. watch what
1: you say right right now because i will be at your house in
0: no time <laughs> the the thing is i think he's talking about valuable companies versus value investing i think that that's the difference and you you even when you're talking about your hooker furniture or your yep. kimball National or yep. your TD, tds right you're not talking about valuable companies you were talking about investments that are valued at a level in which you believe you're going to make money in the future. And that's different. And that's actually not what he's talking about, but, but he's saying like, if something is valuable, then own it. I mean, no, if something is valuable, then own it at a price.
1: Like I wrote this whole thing six months ago about Howard Marks breaking down, like basically the price you pay matters. All value investors go back to Buffett, go back to anyone with a brain, say, The price you pay matters. And so both those companies are valuable. Like pick your favorite company in the world. Amazon is incredibly valuable. Amazon is a company I would love to hold. Amazon at current prices is not going to give me free, free cash flows that are desirable in my eyes. TDS is so. I to say that a company like the a dirt cheap stock is not valuable is a joke. There are
0: free cash flows there. Of course, it's valuable. I'm not buying dumpster fires that lose money. One one thing that you just said makes me think about the. I'm going to overblow this a little bit, but the Michael Burry feud that is now oh, going yeah. on between he and Kathy Wood, because you you just said the hedgehog doesn't understand how cutting edge this is, right? What was Kathy Wood's reaction when, when Michael Burry came out and said that he was, he was well, buying put options?
1: Let's reset. So Michael Burry, Burry of uh, Big Short fame with the Michael, Bush, Michael Lewis book and movie who basically called the housing crisis and made tons of money because of it. He now runs Scion Capital Management and um, he recently has started betting against arc investment who's run by kathy wood and she's been mentioned on the show previously in crypto conversation a lot of conversations uh likes to call her portfolio a yolo trip to nonsense but if you're not familiar she bets on cutting-edge technology and so her stocks are high flying momentum stocks that are very expensive in terms of metrics like uh, pde ratios so when the news comes out that Michael Blurry, I can never say his name, <laughs> uh, bets against her portfolio, her response, I don't have the tweet in front of me, Douglas, Should we pull up the actual tweet?
0: Yeah, let, let's, pull, let's pull up the tweet. So she says, to his credit, Michael Burry made a great call based on fundamentals and recognized the calamity brewing in the housing slash mortgage market. I do not believe that he understands the fundamentals that are creating explosive growth and investment opportunities in the innovation space. What is the innovation space? Just to just to be clear, the so Kathy Wood is imploding right now, and I'm not even saying that her funds are going to implode. I'm saying that she (laughs) seems to be via social media imploding right now. I state that because some of the things that she's saying are are what you say when you are actually somewhat desperate, and I, I don't see her in day to day. But there must be something under the hood because there was something else that I saw her say. She came out and said, We could not be further from a bubble. Yeah, that's I, not I, a I, fact. That, yeah. That's not fact. <laughs> that, 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 is, that is not like every piece of evidence. No, nearly, I shouldn't say every. Yeah. There's yeah. so many pieces of evidence that show that we are in bubble territory. That doesn't mean it's gonna pop tomorrow. That doesn't mean it's gonna pop next year, or any of that. But there's so much to say we couldn't be further shows me that you don't understand what a bubble is. First of all, I don't think,
1: I don't think it's that she doesn't understand. I think I, I hate like throwing shade or talking to LF people, but Oh, Oh, doodles is giving me a look, but no, like she, she's protecting her uh, wallet. I would say like, she can't go around saying we're in a bubble because that would, that would be a reason to short her funds, which is what smart people like Michael Burry are doing.
0: Yes, I I actually no, I can't say yes. So <laughs> there's I, I get I get what you're saying, and I, I lean into that. I think that the the reason that I I state that she's imploding is because per what you said, she can't go around saying we're in a bubble. Fully agree. Yeah. Yeah. However, when you say we can't be further from a bubble, that's not not saying we're in a bubble. Like right, so she's she's trying to, in, from what I see, it feels like I don't know her. I don't actually know what she's trying to do. But it sounds like she's trying too aggressively to state how safe things are, that there must be some like, you know, duck looks calm over the water, but underneath is getting buck wild. That has to be gone on. These statements are not of well, someone of, of, of like sturdy ground. Yeah. If I'm armchair quarterbacking this, she
1: probably just th- feels threatened because – more and more people are shorting her investments all the time. That's not a fun place to be. And if I was in a similar spot, we're going to talk about some of my investments uh, coming up soon. Maybe I'll be claiming we're not in a bubble,
0: depending on <laughs> yeah. the hate mail that I get. All right. Like, I know I, I don't mean it. Well, I guess I can't say I don't mean to throw shade because that's probably what exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> but let's uh, let's kindly
1: guess, throw shade, though.
0: Yeah, I, she um, I mean, she's in a she's in a pickle right now. You're right. I mean, some, someone's coming out with an ETF that is shorting an individual portfolio manager, right? Like that, that's a pickle. Michael Burry, who has a lot of respect, right, in in, in areas like this, is yeah. buying tens of millions of dollars, right, of put options against you. Like that is a position where she has to feel really vulnerable. And she's down this year so far, not by, by a heck of a lot, but she's down in a time where the market is up double digits. Like that's not a good position to be in. So I'm sure she's getting a lot of Emails from investors and feels like she has to come out and say some stuff. Um, it's just that the if I were her PR person, I would say that seemingly desperate statements isn't the way to do it. But saying things Ooh. like "there's there's more room to run," say say how much you believe in the in the stocks and state that and 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 don't make platitudes about explosive growth in the in- innovation space. Which exactly, I I don't know what industry that is. I haven't seen the SIC code for that. I. <laughs> All right. Anyway, sorry. I'm not throwing shade. You just went sick it on me. Oh, my goodness. Uh, (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Where you can invest to get return. But I hadn't thought about where Tina exists. Like when she just like strides around town, you know, strutting her stuff in various areas of the market. Yeah. Right. And the the impact that that then has on the economics of even those micro environments.
1: Well, and your girl is... She set up shop at the mobile par- home park, man. That's where think she about is. about wild. She and is. so to connect this, uh, like I really want to make sure I'm articulating this well because I just think it's so fascinating. Con- to connect this to other conversations we've had going for the past several months, like this is also part of the BlackRock buying suburban homes and stuff because these investment firms are looking for places to create yield and there's just everything's so expensive that they're going, oh hard assets real estate oh mobile home parks are are awesome opportunity and then you talk about the housing crisis and the lack of affordable housing you're going these mobile home parks are going to be even more in demand because there's no affordable housing in a lot of desirable places i just let me let me actually give the details of the article slash podcast it's called mobile home parked on planet
0: money on npr it's cool i'll check it out now i'm gonna i'm gonna reach into the fishbowl and pull out something with regard to the search for yield. A lot that's coming out right now is saying that there it like yield is going to be with regard to bonds, with regard to uh, just returns on stocks, right? Decreasing over time because we've had such a boom in that world and tying to something we've talked about a good amount. You have to watch, well, in any world, but especially in that world, you have to watch the amount you're paying in fees. Yeah. Yep. Right. And so there is this Wall Street Journal article that came out that's called say goodbye to the 1% investment advisor fee. And what that's alluding to is basically if you, maybe not even alluding, what's straight hit up on the noggin is if you want someone to manage your money, then you got to pay them. And historically, a, a give or take 1% has been like the going rate for uh, registered investment advisors, right? So yes. right. So if I'm investing $10,000, dollars hey say, Skippy, take my $10,000, bring me return. You're basically going to be like, all right, well, give me a hundred bucks, right? Mm-hmm. And give me a hundred bucks a year. I'll manage it for you. That one, that like might sound like nothing. If you're making uh, what people are expecting 17%, you know, after inflation <laughs> returns, yeah. right? If, you, if you're like, well, I'm bringing in seven, seventeen, 17 tendies, take one of them. Like no, you know, no big deal. Right. However, tendies. yeah, I know. I know. I'm just, I'm just throwing out language. I don't even understand, but <laughs> in that world, it might seem like nothing, but um, I just, I threw out some some numbers uh, just to, so we can get like a sense for what 1% does over time, right? Cause that, that's one year. If you go, instead of making 17%, I'm gonna make 16%, whatever, yeah. but here, here's some figures. Well, so, Douglas,
1: let me guess, cause I haven't run these numbers in a while. It's as much as a third, like, like 30, 40 years later, 1% is as much as a third, a quarter of return.
0: Yeah, well, if you think about the power of compounding, you basically yeah. take the number of years and it's like a little more than that times 1%, right? I mean, effectively. So if you, um, let's say that you're, you're doing this over 25 years, right? And I'm expecting a 5% return, but instead I get a 4% return, you're going to lose about 30%, right? Of you, you will have 30, 30% of your, yeah. your harder. I mean, money that beyond. 1% takes one third of your money. It's, it's absolutely yeah, exactly. staggering. If you go to 7% versus 6%, then we're talking about, a little like 26%, a little over 25%. Now, if you look at the numbers that some folks are projecting over the you know, coming decade or so, which is like one and a half percent, like basically nothing, then you're effectively saying you're taking, like they just take everything <laughs> right? away, away yeah. at that point, right? Well, more than, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. If <laughs> exactly. expected returns
1: are like, say, barely positive or maybe negative. I mean, like- yeah.
0: It takes a lot. So yeah. the point of this is saying- If you look at these numbers, it's a big deal that's compounding over time and folks that are getting, let's say hundreds of thousands of dollars that they're giving to RIAs, registered investment advisors, you're paying so much money um, in order to, this article says uh, the average investor with $750,000 paid 1.04% of investment assets um, in fees in 2020, which is up from 1.02% in 2015 right? Yeah. The more money that you have to invest with someone, the lower rates. And so an investor with 10 million, it's saying paid 0.62%. Anyway, those are those are high numbers. Uh, and it was throwing out some alternatives. I'll, I'll, I'll name what the alternatives are. And then I just love to get your sense or your take on fees in general, in this world. And also, we can talk about hedge funds, because I know that that's come up a bit before. Yeah. So alternatives, it's throwing out are flat annual fees. So don't charge me a percent. Just say, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna charge you five grand, no matter how much, you go up or down, like if you give me 1 million, that's not half as much work as 2 million. So I'll just take $5,000 from you. Yep. It is another world where it says, uh, we're gonna charge you monthly or hourly fees. So kind of like a lawyer, mm-hmm. right? Effectively, like, I'm gonna you I'm gonna charge you based on the work that I do. And then the third one they threw out there was basically just lower fees. <laughs> like just to stop ripping people off and just charge lower fees, yep. Um, or what they threw out there. So all right,
1: let me let me jump in. Uh, So my favorite guy in the space is James Osborne. Uh, he's local, he's uh, from Lakewood, Colorado, uh, basinasset.com, and if you go to his Twitter, the t- tweet pinned on top of his profile is the ridiculous nature of asset-based fees. He is obviously a fee-only uh, asset advisor. He has an interview with Michael, I never know how to say his, I always say his name wrong. Michael Cl- Kites? Kleitz? Uh, no, the- Not, not,
0: not the godfather?
1: I'll put it on the Twitter because I butchered his name who is like the advisor to financial advisors and talks a lot about how to build a a group. I'm with you in most cases that fee. So if one, I think getting quality financial advice can be incredibly important once you have a certain foundation and a certain net wealth. So I just say that Two, I think. I think asset based fees are wrong for the majority of people, even though they're most common. Um, I think fee only makes a lot of sense. Or my favorite is always performance based fees. Performance based fees are hard, and our regulations made it nearly impossible to implement unless you're an accredited investor, which creates all sorts of additional hoops. But my side tangent here you, Sorry, go, before you go on though, would you explain what performance based fees are? If I manage your money and you lose money, or I make you 2%, I don't charge any fee whatsoever.
0: But both of those Um, sound like plausible scenarios if you're managing my money, continue. Oh, please.
1: So (laughs) Buffett did this in an early partnership where returns less than 6%, he'd charge no fee. He didn't have any of those because he's Warren Buffett. (laughs) And then (laughs) he'd take a, a quarter of excess return over 6%. So if he made you 10%, he'd take 1% if he made you uh 14 he'd take two percent all the way on up dougal's in the scenarios you just ran you see how once you get above a certain threshold taking fees out of that doesn't really kill you because you you're making these incredible returns so like if you make 12 percent a year you're in good shape and buffett keeps two percent i really think that's the model i'll tell you why that's not the model there's a thousand reasons for this but one that sucks for the financial advisor because when the financial advisor has a down year, their income completely disappears. Two, people argue that that incentivizes financial advisors to uh, take unwarranted risk, which I think if you can't trust your financial advisor to take unwarranted risk because you think they're going to uh, go for a short-term gain, then you have their wrong financial advisor in the first place. I think we got two great articles um from listeners this week i want to start with one that came in from kyle who's really my boy kyle and i get way back he sent over this article in the new york times this is one of those guys. if you're on the fence about paying for journalism like this article to me was worth the cost of subscription to the new york times for like three months because it's just really well done it's by connor daughtry who's based out of the bay area it's called where the suburbs end about california real estate uh so you can make it through this one I did. I did. Spit on it. So I know you used to live in
0: California. I'm curious for your initial reactions before I dive into the facts. All I can say is when the mention of the unaffordable housing crisis right, came up a bunch, when I was, in, so I was in San Francisco specifically, we rented our 750-square-foot two-bedroom apartment, couldn't afford to buy that, and wouldn't have bought it yeah. if we could afford to buy it. Like that was, that's yeah. kind of like the, the summary. And this was years ago. And so on the other side of the pandemic, or the other side of the, the crisis, right, that was in the pandemic. I'm not sure where things are, but that about sums it up. No, and that's kind of the background, right? It's In my experience, it's like really educated,
1: uh, with it folks often get pressed out of communities that just, it seems crazy. It seems like there's a crazy disconnect. I have family over there who used to live in San Francisco, ended up moving all the way to Fresno to get a house and a yard that they think is i know right that's like a three-hour drive for those who don't know you got to do it's a totally different community totally different place um and and that's happened all over the place so governor Newsom has been working on this i don't know for this conversation let's call it a, a housing crisis right and the way they chose to solve it or attempt to solve it is with adus uh which are basically backyard units that you can throw in any suburban backyard and make another house out of it. And there's a lot of arguments for. Um some of it is mother-in-law suite or you know if the kids are ready to move out but they can't afford to your point, you know, they can't afford a million dollar home because they're in their early 20s or whatever. So they signed a state bill, I think it's called SB9, Sarah right, Douglas, SB9. That Sounds basically right. statewide uh, makes it legal to put backyard units in all suburban homes. So they, they kind of overrode the city ordinances that used to make this extremely more challenging and went for it. The, the interesting thing about this, potentially on the positive side, this has paved the way for some 2.5 million new housing units, which is about 25 years of the state supply at current building pace. So so they went from saying, we're gonna have struggles with building new homes, and it might not be solvable for decades, to going, hey, within the next three years, we, we can easily build and install and permit 25 years worth of inventory. Wow. Now, what comes with this is all the dynamics of, well, my suburban home, you know, like I'm not in favor of that, uh, because yeah. it's going
0: to change the dynamic. What about parking? What about infrastructure? What about everything else? Yeah. And the personal—sorry to interrupt, but the yeah. personal stories they put in there around that. He, it was so well written, the way that oh, uh, that really he weaved good. in the personal stories about the the woman that like grew up in the house and now lives across the street and all all that. It was really well written.
1: Yeah, I want to uh, pull this quote. So, housing politics is by or is nonpartisan. The term nimby which is N I M B Y, short for not in my backyard right can't you relate to that it's like oh i understand that there's an affordability crisis or a housing crisis and if people outside of my neighborhood want to solve this by all means but when the politics shows up in my neighbor's backyard and that means i have more cars parked on my street
0: like it becomes a, i don't care if i'm red or blue I don't like change yeah people are nimby all over the place right it's kind of like the uh people that are i'm all for higher taxes on the wealthy all that well hold but but like but can you wait until after my yeah after (laughs) (laughs) yeah just hold up on that
1: (laughs) i love that NIMBY everywhere so let me give you a few more facts and then if this is interesting we can continue the debate if not we'll move on right so he specifically details a neighborhood called uh, Claremont Village outside of San Diego built in the fifties, right when this was built, the median income to afford the eighty two dollar monthly payment was the very definition of middle class like this is as middle class as it gets right plumbers to doctors to you know like it's a diverse neighborhood um today, those same homes cost about. Um, 850000 which is up 30% just in the past two years. And you would have to make about double the median income in San Diego to afford one of those homes. So same neighborhood, not not particularly like nice or m- mansions. The definition of middle class, when it was built, has now gone to something that's double the definition of middle class to afford the payment. And a lot of that speaks to the housing shortage in my eyes. And what it's done to housing prices
0: in California, but you see this other places in the States, right? There was one thing, this is not what the article's about, but it was something that was traveling through my head as I was reading about this, is that that 1950s housing boom, so the post-World War II like, housing boom effectively that happened in the US, which was a lot of government sponsorship that went behind it, created an enormous amount of wealth from like home equity for people for homeowners in the country, yeah, except it was largely targeted for the like white population of the u s. and so yeah. what was well, what was going through my my head as I was reading this is from the perspectives that were in this article, like i I fully understand it. and then I was also thinking that there's there's this double maybe triple quadruple whammy quintuple, because I just keep going up, sex tuple whammy uh, that happens, which is there were the folks that were left out of that initial boom. Plus now you have the housing crisis for these folks. There's NIMBY. And then for these other folks that are like, can I have a backyard? Uh, I I don't don't know if I (laughs) I (laughs) can. Too much.
1: That's way too much, but it's funny. Okay. So then, yeah, I hear you. Right. And it's, that's in a way happening today in terms of, if you're in a hot real estate market, you either have owned a home and you're right in that wave or you haven't. And you're just you've just missed out and it's it's terrible. And that's all associated to this supply crunch. Here's what's happening on the developer side that I think is interesting. Then we'll put a bow on this. So they profile a guy that's been flipping homes in this environment, right? So he buys a home in that neighborhood. He pays 700 K. Uh, it's the estimate that the current rental he could pull from that is a little over three grand, which basically pays the mortgage, right? What he's gonna do is spend an additional four hundred k building new units and splitting the house, so it's set up to rent, and then he's gonna command somewhere between nine thousand and ten thousand a month in rent, which makes the property worth the equivalent of one point seven million obviously increasing the population density on that lot by three to four times so he now has a very easy way to turn this suburban family home into almost a rental complex and make i mean you do the quick math there he should be up 600k If his math is right here, even if he wants to sell the thing because he buys a home and he sells a rental unit of four properties. And again, I see both sides in terms of how that's better for the community and how
0: that would absolutely drive the neighbors insane. It's a, this is not a simple problem. Like it's, it's a, it's really complex. The, the supply, if you abstract everything out, the supply situation in California is absolutely real. And so and I think what the what the government is basically saying is we're just focusing on that, like, that's a real thing. And there are going to be consequences from this, but we got to we got to settle that. But when you get down to the micro level, the neighborhood level, the NIMBY level, it's it feels real. Right. Those those emotions are legit and valid. And uh, this is the Patrick
1: O'Shaughnessy pod. So uh, one of some really quality content comes out of there. I know I've mentioned it in the past this was basically about philip and bill's adventure with uh, second life and doodles i know you're very familiar so I'll, I'll let you jump in shortly but um philip founded second life i I'll, I'll lean on you for the facts i want to say 20 years ago really got hot in
0: 99 ish is that right i was after that um so it was founded and if i remember correctly it was founded in 2003 and yeah. the two thousand six to like two thousand eight two thousand nine era was really when when it was hot the hotness thank you um
1: so yeah the ninety nine reference I made actually as I remember it that's when Philip felt like the competing power was getting to the point where he could take this idea he had and turn it into something and it I think his idea was largely about he loved Legos growing up, and he thought it'd be really cool if a bunch of people in real time could collaborate on like Lego sets that all link together, right? Super cool idea and really cutting edge, I think in the early two thousands. And there's a reason that this got popular that a few factoids that I'll throw out that I just thought was super interesting for those who don't know. Second life is like the first iteration of what people are calling the metaverse today and. It's also probably an early iteration of like the Minecrafts that are incredibly popular right now. I think Minecraft is the first or second most popular video game in the world. The Roblox, which is a public company that has all sorts of buzz and has some really cool features. Uh, Second Life did this first. And so Patrick's view was, I'm going to talk to Philip and Bill about their adventures 15 years ago and see what's applicable to... Zuckerberg's vision of the metaverse today. I just think it's a fascinating concept. If you're hearing that buzzword out, I'd encourage you uh, to dig into this because there were so many great learnings. So let me pause before I go down several more rabbit holes,
0: stuggles and uh, let you jump in on the Second Life experience. Sure thing. And uh, i so I left Linden Lab, which is the company that makes Second Life. I left there about a decade ago. Um, so anything that's happened there over the past 10 years, I don't know anything about. But the technology behind this is incredible. Like, I don't think I'll I'll experience technology again in my career that was comparable to what was created there. To give you a sense early on, so uh, so um, Philip was at a company called Real Networks before he came to Second Life, and Real Networks was uh it was a media player online, and so that's where when you bring up like seeing bandwidth being capable, computing power being capable of doing this, like he was in the heart of uh, of of what bandwidth and computer power looked like but anyway early on in, in uh, second life they created this thing called the rig so this is before my time at the very beginning created this thing called the rig which was a chair that you'd sit on and it would measure like you'd get all hooked up and it would measure like your your movement your body movements so you can move your avatar like through this chair right? wow yeah i mean it's phenomenal then drop that end up going to a mouse and a keyboard right but because yeah. it's much more practical uh, but anyway, it was just showing you how far ahead uh, the thought process and the like, technological push was at this organization. Um, but quite incredible. Uh, and happy to to talk a little bit more as you start to get into the podcast. I'd love to hear what was interesting to you. Uh, and then I can feed in any experience I had there if applicable. Yeah, well, so much. And I'm glad we have a, a expert
1: with some experience at this actual company that we can lean on today in Dougals. But just really fascinating stuff so they talked about total addressable market a little bit right he said initially they were kind of excited with i'll probably articulate this wrong way but like the graphics and they wanted it to be somewhat lifelike and stuff and then when they compare and contrast to like the minecrafts and the roblox today that have taken off in a way that maybe second life never uh, got to that in terms of number daily active users and sort of things they both said one of the things that Minecraft did right is make the learning curve to get immersed in that world as simple as possible. And you see that with five-year-olds and seven-year-olds jumping into Minecraft head over heels. I think Second Life, and I'd be interested for your take on this, initially it was like, this is a more adult-like thing. And they just realized that the niche for adults that one either have the free time or have the interest or have the desire to escape to this other world is a small percentage of of all adults. I mean, people are out raising kids and going to soccer games and doing balancing their work stuff, right. So that was a really interesting insight that they said, if they did it all over again, they'd make it as simple as possible. And they'd probably start you start with kids
0: as your core market, and maybe grow from there. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about this before on the pod around around kids, because to give you um, some sense for uh, when I was there, I did a, a lot of leading on strategy, like corporate strategy for them, a, a bunch of other stuff. But one of the things that I kept tracking was the growth of virtual worlds around kids. And so yeah. I'd send these emails to like, um, Philip, our CFO at the time, right. Um, uh, and then we had a CEO and CEO at one point, Mark Kingdon, a uh, great guy. And say, like, we got to do this thing, right? And we had—we actually had two. There were two separate second lives. There was the adult second life, and then there was a kid's one. But the kid's one was effectively neglected. Okay. We didn't—we didn't do as much there. It was it was like a tiny part of things. And I was saying, like, this—this this feels like it's a real thing. And then one day, uh, Philip was like, he called me in, and I'd made this deck that I'd put in a drawer. I used to make decks and put them in drawers. It was like a thing I did when I early in my career. Do do that if you want, young young kids. Anyway, so I pulled out this deck and like showed what could the growth of kids be like, and Philip was like, go do this. And so we had this project that was like, about six or seven uh, months long, where we looked into how can we have kids be in the same world as the adults, because Mm -hmm. them being separate, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. And so I was like, how do we redo our marketplace? And so we we did this whole thing. And kids grew from like 1% to 20% of our audience, nearly overnight, like it became a pretty big thing. But it, it wasn't built for kids, I think, to the point of what he brought this up in the, the pod is that we didn't have the simplicity, right, that like kids could really get into. So we ended up making it, it a 16 plus. Um, so it wasn't like yeah. kids, kids, it was 16 plus so uh, that we ended up making it. But yeah, but I fully as he was talking there, he and Bill, were talking about that it like took me back, like fully uh, into those moments when we were discussing But trip down memory lane. No, it's so fun. I I
1: really enjoyed this one because I mean, I think Bill Gurley is like the most rational fencer capitalist that I'm aware of. I'm always taken by like his expertise, but his groundedness. And, you know, he just comes across as trustworthy to me. And that's not always the case with those types of folks. I really enjoyed this. But to me, this, the overarching thing without going down too many rabbit holes was kind of like, they are directly saying that zuckerberg's vision for the metaverse is misguided i don't know what's the right word Douglas, like they don't appear to be excited about his ideas for how the metaverse will work about his thoughts of the total addressable market about his ideas about profitability like to me the two most knowledgeable people in the world on the subject basically i mean they'd be in that a handful of 10 most knowledgeable people on the metaverse are going no the zuckerberg's approach doesn't make any sense and that's how i felt from the start like uh, that's the the worst part of the facebook investment right now from an equity perspective is the fact that they want to spend however many billions on the metaverse and i just think it's a dead end um anyway what what were your takes on that compare and contrast of their learnings to zuckerberg's approach and maybe
0: not just zuckerberg there's a lot of people talking about the metaverse right now yeah but but in general yeah so going back to your point around bill gurley rational he is and also pushes the envelope like rational and pushes the envelope philip is not rational like which i think makes like a really interesting pairing and what i mean by that is like back in early 2000s he's thinking about rigging people to chairs right like it's like a he's living in a whole different universe so it's it's an interesting uh, like pairing as far as the podcast goes. To your point, I mean, it's a creator mindset. It's awesome. Exactly. Like you need those type of people. Yeah, exactly. Part of what they brought up in the pod, and uh, and it's true, is that like they did this, right? Like they, the the what when I say did this, I mean what Zuckerberg's talking about around. I think exactly what one of uh, Bill Gurley, I'll get the quote a little bit wrong, but in the spot he said, he's like, no one wants to have a board meeting in the metaverse. Like, we had board meetings in, in the metaverse, right? Yeah. And, and then there was a... There and was the a... board members said, we're not going back to that. We did, that was yeah. not a good experience for us. You know, like, we've been there, done that. Exactly. Because it's, it's, a, it's a useless use of the technology, basically, because you, you log in, you get in your avatar, and you go sit in a chair, and then it's just audio, right? Like, that, that isn't a... Then it just becomes yep. a conference call. And so that's not the use for it. There are other elements that you can use for business and education, which uh, Philip also talked about around building out three-dimensional representations of things in the real life, and you can experience them together. Like that is that's a use for it. But like, mm-hmm. a, if if Mark Zuckerberg or at all like ends up going down the same path, effectively that Second Life with the enterprise went down, then you're not using the learning that other folks have had. So if you just kind of go in there and you hang out with with other people from your company, like that's not that's not going to be it at all. But there's a there there, but you just got you got to get it right. And if people have already gone down that path, I hope Zuckerberg's trying to meet with Philip and Bill and Mitch Kapoor, who is the earliest investor there and on the board, like, learn learn from the past. And there's there's stuff to do. I just like, if you're at all fascinated, it's the
1: best thing. I feel like I've consumed five different podcasts that somehow talk about the metaverse. And this was by far the most rational, uh, most meaty. There's so many good learnings and and appropriate facts in there like Second Life is still around I think the uh, user base is about what it was sometime in the late 2000s Douglas. and yeah. there's still I forget the numbers but I think billions of dollars being exchanged in uh that Marketplace um they talked about creating the Marketplace and that was just fascinating to me I mean they basically could have had crypto long before crypto now it wouldn't have been decentralized on a block blockchain but they made a decision early on about if it was going to be pegged to the dollar or if there was going to be a fixed amount of the fixed supply of the currency which could have completely changed the outcome of that game because people could have started buying linden dollars as the user base grew they would have increased in values relative to the dollar which could have brought more users to the space it, there's just a lot of fascinating decisions that were made i really
0: enjoyed the pod and so i'd recommend it um for Agreed. sure definitely if you're into the metaverse listen to this podcast and i'd also if you're going to read anything about second life to pull a thread that you just said read about the economy i think that is the most fascinating part about second life is the economy the linden dollar as the the quote unquote cryptocurrency that's not what we called it there but the digital currency yeah. the economy is so fascinating and the exchange that they that had so like if you can find old articles or anything about that i would i would go and read read about that really fascinating the original nfts really big Yeah, really good stuff. Uh, I'll check that out.